the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome, everybody, to The Dan Proft Show. I am John Hinderocker from Powerline, filling in for Dan tonight. If you are not familiar with Powerline, you should check us out. We are at uh, powerlineblog.com, but if you just Google Powerline, either one word or two, we will be the first thing that uh, that pops up. We have uh, fresh content, commentary on the news, and sometimes breaking the news uh, every day. So, so I want to start out uh, this show talking about an event that I just got back from night before last. I spent four days in uh, Palm Beach, Florida. When you're living in Minnesota in late December, <laughs> Palm Beach is a is a pretty nice place to uh, to spend four days. Partly because of the weather, uh, which obviously is a lot warmer there than it is uh, back here in uh, in Minnesota. But not only for that reason, also because uh, Florida is a relatively free state. The, the restaurants are open, the bars are open, events are taking place. There are some restrictions. Uh, it's not 100%, but it is a great deal more back in business than a lot of states, including my home state of Minnesota. So I was in Palm Beach in order to attend Turning Point USA's Winter Gala which took place at Mar-a-Lago, the, the Trump estate in uh, West Palm Beach, and also to participate in, in some of the early phases of Turning Point's Student Action Summit, which it holds uh, every year in which thousands of college and high school students attend from across the country. And that, too, was a lot of fun. Um, so we spent, uh, I think it was Friday night at, uh, at Mar-a-Lago, which, as you can imagine, is a beautiful place. It was the first time that, uh, that I'd ever been there. And uh, we had a, a very nice program that included um, speeches at the, at the dinner by, um, uh, by uh, Laura Ingram, by Christy Noam, by Rand Paul, and by Kaylee McEnany. They were all brief. <laughs> it could have been a long evening, but they all just uh, spoke briefly, and it was great to hear from all of them. The reception before the, uh, before the dinner and, and, uh, and the kind of follow-up reception after the dinner took place by the pool outdoors at, uh, at Mar-a-Lago, and was a lot of fun. We met some very, very uh, interesting people, including a young woman who for the last five years has been responsible for all of President Trump's events. Talked to another young guy who was there with his, uh, with his parents who have a ranch in Texas. He's a Navy SEAL. Uh, stationed at uh, Coronado, California, and it's always interesting to to talk with uh, special forces uh, personnel about the things that they do. So it was a terrific event, and and one of the things that made it so great, of course, was that uh, most people were not wearing masks, so that it, you could talk to people and and meet them and chat with them and actually be able to understand what they're saying, which is often often hard to do through a through a mask. And then at the uh, 
with the Student Action Summit, you know, one of the things that we did was participate in a roundtable with Ambassador Rick Grinnell, which was very, very interesting. Uh, chatted for a, for a good amount of time with a, a woman who was going to be in charge of ballot integrity for the 2022 election, working in various states to try to make sure that what happened in 2020 doesn't happen again in two years' time. So it was uh, it was a very fun and very informative few days uh, down in Florida. So the Washington Post, <laughs> the Washington Post, as you can imagine, is very hostile uh, toward Turning Point USA. And the reason is that Turning Point is a conservative organization that's very effective. Uh, Turning Point, I think, does probably um, the best job of any national organization at getting conservative messages in front of young people in both uh, college and high school and uh, and beyond that, organizing them and motivate, motivating them uh, to be uh, conservative uh, activists. And, um, of course, this is not what the Washington Post wants to see. And so whenever they have the opportunity for a drive-by smear of Turning Point, uh, they're happy to take it. And so they had a story uh, yesterday morning or the, or the day before in the Washington Post uh, about uh, the Winter Gala at Mar-a-Lago, which I attended, and the Student Action Summit. And the headline really summed up the article very well. It only made a couple of points. The headline said, Young Conservatives Mingled Maskless at Mar-a-Lago and Partied with a Money Cannon. That, that is what the, the Washington Post headline uh, said. And, and this, of course, was not based on sending a reporter down to Florida to actually attend these events uh, and, and report on them in some, in some meaningful way. The Post didn't do that at all. The entire article was based on social media posts, which some Washington Post reporter uh, followed and 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 used to cherry pick a couple of items that the newspaper thought would reflect negatively on Turning Point and on the people who participated in these uh, really very terrific, uh, terrific events. So so the first thing that they they wrote at the Post, again, based on just looking at people's uh, social media Post, possibly including mine, I don't know, uh, was that most of the people in attendance were, were, did not appear to be wearing masks. Now, that's true. I certainly didn't wear a mask, uh, and uh, and I was happy about that. You know, there was a time when this was called freedom. You know, if you were concerned about COVID transmission and so forth, you had the option of not attending. And and a number of people who who are older and perhaps in frail health uh, elected not to attend. Uh, there are a lot of people, especially elderly people, who have really cut back on their social lives as a result of the COVID epidemic, and, and that's their choice. Uh, that's, that's terrific if that's what they want to do. And there were some people who attended the event and chose to wear a mask, and that's fine, too. Uh, this is freedom of choice. I, I'm so old, I can remember when, when liberals at least claimed to be in favor of freedom of choice. Uh, and of course, those days are long gone. So, yes, shockingly, people attended this event, and many of them, including me, uh, did not wear a mask. The other part of the headline was a little more puzzling to me because it wasn't something that I actually witnessed. But what's going on here is that there is a sponsor of, uh, of Turning Point and, and of this uh, event, which is called – it's the Bang Energy Drink company. And they make, you know, these energy drinks like you, you see a lot of nowadays. And apparently they, they do very, very well. They were a sponsor of the uh, of the Student Action Summit. And as a sponsor, they got a few minutes on the stage. 
And one of the things that they did is, is, is their CEO or somebody was talking about buying energy drinks in, in front of this crowd of about 3,500 young people. It was, it was limited somewhat this year by capacity restrictions, but about 3,500 uh, young people uh, attended. And one of the things they did is they had one of these, one of these guns with like seven or eight barrels or whatever it is that, that you'll see at sports events that they use to shoot T-shirts into a crowd. I think that's the, that's the most common use of these guns, at least that I've seen. Only, only this time what they were doing was they were shooting dollar bills into the crowd as, as this guy was talking about, about bang uh, energy drinks. And uh, and the Post thought this was just terrible, you know, just awful. How dare they have fun is basically the theme. How dare they do something as as fun and irreverent, which the kids loved, of course, as as shooting one dollar bills into the uh, into the crowd. The Post was very, very snippy about this. And of course, what made it even worse was that the the money gun, the money cannon, was being operated by several young women who were attractive. <laughs> and you know, they weren't wearing bikinis or anything like that, but you know, they were attractive young women. And this too, this too, if you're a liberal, apparently is some kind of a scandal. You know, how dare they? How dare they uh, not only do something fun, but have it executed by attractive young Women, you know, I'm old enough that I can remember when almost every marketing campaign in America featured attractive young women. That was considered to be a sound marketing strategy, and it was it was followed by just about everybody. And at some point in the last twenty years, I, when I wasn't paying attention, apparently that that became uh, a scandal as opposed to a, a standard uh, marketing practice. So that was the best the Washington Post could do to smear this really fun, really inspirational uh, get-together by all these young conservatives and and by supporters of of Turning Point USA, including uh, people like me. And of course, what, what, what the Post article doesn't mention is what Turning Point actually does and how much it achieves. They, they didn't mention the fact that uh, Turning Point has more than a 1,000 college and high school chapters all across the country. Think about that, more than a 1,000 chapters. And the Washington Post didn't see fit to mention that in 2020, Turning Point has scored more than 974 million engagements on social media with 60 million social media followers. In short, this is a very active, very effective, very impactful uh, organization, but those facts I think uh, were deemed inconvenient by the Washington Post uh, reporters and editors, and they appear nowhere in the story. So anyway, it's great to be back in Minnesota, even if it is uh, forecast to get down to one degree below zero Fahrenheit uh, tonight. And uh, we are going to uh, run to a break now and be back with more after these messages. The more you'll know, this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We are joined now by Thomas Holman, former acting director of Immigration and Customs Enforcement uh, during the Trump administration and a 30 year veteran of immigration and law enforcement. Uh, Tom, thanks for being on the program. Uh, thanks for having me. 
Tom, you've got a piece at the at the American Conservative that responds to an article uh, by uh, somebody at the American Civil Liberties Union attacking ICE uh, detention centers, and I want to talk about some of the points that you make in this uh, this terrific piece. But before we get to that, I want to talk just a little bit about the centers themselves. What are we talking about here, Tom? Are we talking about uh, detention centers on the southern border where people caught uh, trying to cross illegally are are temporarily held? Are we talking about uh, other other uses of detention centers? What what exactly are these? Well, look, we've got a series of detention centers built around the country. Many of them are, are located, of course, near the southwest border, but we, we have detention centers all across the country because ICE not only detains those who cross the border illegally that are arrested by the Border Patrol, we also detain those who are arrested by local police for crimes, and we get and they get released from the jails, and we have detention centers in, in near some of the biggest cities across the country. They're a place where we, we hold people until they can see an immigration judge and have their case heard. Uh, of course, they're in the country lately, so they're obviously a flight risk, which requires us to detain them. And you know, and we all know they're a flight risk. That's why there's you know well over 12 million illegal aliens in this country right now. I think it's closer to 20 million. So, and they're built for the sole purpose of civil detention. So, you know, as long as I you know been involved with ICE, I constantly hear from the far left that these detention centers are poorly managed and. and the medical programs are are, are um, very bad, but it's, it's simply not true. It's, it's not factual at all. A lot of money spent on uh, building, maintaining these facilities, and providing health care and all kinds of um, benefits to those that we detain until a judge makes the determination. And I, I assume there's a pretty wide range, but I mean, how long are we typically talking about? How how long might the average uh... the average length of detention will run you between thirty and forty days, depending on the case. Now, you got your outliers. If if someone's detained, they appeal to the you know the the appellate court of the uh, immigration court. Then the, the attorneys can certainly appeal to the local district court. Then they can appeal to the the uh, federal appellate court. And there's been cases appealed all the way up to the Supreme Court. So. Detention can last several years if they want to keep fighting their case and keep appealing the decisions. But the average length of detention is anywhere between 30 and 40 days for, for your regular case. And, and during the Trump administration, we heard just hysterical uh, commentary on the idea of, of, of children being separated from their parents. This, you, 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 we heard this for, for months. Is, is, is that what we're talking about here? Are, are just, these detention centers where that would – would this be the place where that no, takes no, place? No, detention centers – we detain several populations, right? So we detain adult males and adult females. Uh, and if we detain uh, a child, it has to be with a parent. So we do have about 3,000 uh, uh, family residential center beds. And these are, again, soft-sided facilities. You're not talking about razor wire or Constantino or any stuff you see in, in regular jails. These are a campus-type setting, a dorm-type setting, where we detain families together. Uh, ICE is not legally uh, able to detain a child. As per the Homeland Security Act of 2002, the Tracking Victims Act of 2008, um, Border Patrol or ICE can only hold on to a child for less than 72 hours and we're required to turn them over to uh, HHS. So the way it works on the border, if, if the Border Patrol arrests a child, you know, like the, the unaccompanied alien children are, are steadily increasing as we speak. As they come across and are apprehended by the Border Patrol, 
they are quickly turned over to Health and Human Services and put it in the possession of uh, Office of Refugee Resettlement. And they put them in, in licensed daycare facilities throughout the country until they, again, hear their immigration case or find a uh, relative or sponsoring to take care of the child while that case is proceeding to court. Now, let, let's go to your, your piece at the American Conservative. You're, you're responding here to, to uh, an article that was written by somebody from the ACLU uh, attacking uh, these uh, ICE uh, detention centers as, uh, as inhumane and, and, and so forth. And how, how do you respond to those claims? It's a false narrative. You know, these same people that want open borders, you know, ACLU has been fighting immigration enforcement for decades. They, they, they always they fight law enforcement generally. But, you know, I've been there and I've seen them constructed. I've been to many of the facilities myself in my uh, three decades of th- almost 35 years enforcing immigration law. Um, these are some of the finest detention facilities uh, constructed. And, and, and the detention standards alone, um, the standards of detention, we call them, are the highest in the industry. There is no state or federal facility or, or county facility that has the, the, the height of detention standards that ICE does. It's called PBNDS-11, Performance-Based Detention Standards, that were created in 2011 with the help of many non-government organizations and, and you know, uh, accreditation agencies and, and penal uh, accreditation agencies where all sorts of people came to the table and came up with these standards that, frankly, if the taxpayers knew what those standards were, they may be upset how much they are paying for. Uh, they're so high. Let's put it this way. When I was the ICE director, I had numerous, numerous sheriffs either because we have our detention facilities that we own. We have detention facilities that we contract out. But there's not enough beds, not enough facilities. We do contract with some county jails to hold someone temporarily. And a lot of jails would end their contract with ICE or refuse to enter in a contract with ICE because the sheriff said, I don't give these type of standards to U.S. citizens. So why would I give to somebody in the country illegally? And, uh, and, and there's no way you can pay me enough to do this because it's going to cost a lot of money to have ex- extra nurses. It's going to cost extra money to have this size recreation or have a law library or all these other things that we require. So the attention standards are the highest in the industry. And no one can argue that. If anybody can go on the ICE website and look at the detention standards, look at PBNDS 11, the detention standards that were created in 2000, and read them for themselves. They compare that detention standards in any jail across this country. Our stand, head and shoulders above any of them. We've got just about a minute and a half left here, Tom, in this segment. Uh, one of the things that the ACLU guy attacked uh, the ICE centers for is that some of them are operated by a, a private company or by, by one or more private companies for profit, as he, as he put it. Uh, comment, on, comment on that, if you would. Businesses are in the business of making money. And so, yes, these companies make a profit or they wouldn't be doing it. But look, the, the private detention facility, I can tell you right now, the most expensive beds that ICE has are the ones the federal government own. And there's not many of them anymore because of, because of the cost. We got rid of most of them. I think, there's like, I think we got five facilities left. But it doesn't say that they're doing anything wrong. I mean, you know, bus companies make money. Airline companies make money. And they do book government business, too. Uh, so it's relying on the, 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 the non-government system to provide the services for the government is a necessity. We couldn't complete our mission 
without some of these big companies that do things big, they do it smart, they do it cheap, we couldn't survive without them. Tom Homan, we are up against a hard break here. We will be back with more with Tom Homan after these messages. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. We are talking with uh, Tom Holman, former acting director of uh, Immigration and Customs Enforcement in the uh, Trump administration. We've been talking about the detention facilities that uh, the federal government operates, uh, contracts with uh, private companies to operate, and the high level of quality, the high level of of care at these facilities. Tom, um, I, I want to talk about that at a kind of a, a broader level uh, for, for a couple of minutes here. So, so, so a lot of these people, particularly that are being held at the um, southern uh, detention facilities, I assume, simply got caught uh, illegally crossing the border. Is is that right? Yes. Why is it um, that we have to go to such extraordinary lengths uh, to house these people, to give them medical care, to uh, you know, to support them for what could be months? Why? Why is that required? Why can't we simply? There's a couple of things you need to consider. First of all, what what the what the the ACLU said in their report, of course, they they they, they told half truths. Was first of all, seven, about seventy to seventy-two percent of everybody we detain are being detained because they're congressionally mandated to be detained. The, the statute, federal statute, said they must be detained because they're expedited removal cases or caught crossing the country, or border illegally. The border to agent process them for expedited removal, which means we got to detain them because they're a flight risk. Uh, anybody doesn't think that someone just crossed the border illegally is a flight risk. Just sort of you know wrong. Ninety-five percent of everybody ICE deports from this country, they deport from a bed. Five percent of total people that we deport, we deport from a non-detention setting. Why? Because once they get released, they're in the wind, and that's why we have close to twenty million illegal aliens in the country now. We have well over one point six million uh, illegal aliens in this country who had due process. They were ordered removed by a federal judge and didn't leave. And reason the fugitives because they weren't detained. These are, you know, ICE only detains a small percentage of everybody across the border. ICE has, like, right now they're funded for like 35,000 beds, but they have over 400,000 people come through the system. So less than 10% of those who are coming to the country are detained. So those that are released, that they either do not show up in court, or if they do show up in court and order removal, they don't leave. So it's it's a necessity that we detain these folks to, to, so they can have a due process. There's only one way you can guarantee they get due process is to detain them for 30 to 40 days. If you release them, let me add this point. If you're released, as we call it the non-detained docket, your case is put on a shelf because the immigration courts are going to prioritize those that are being detained for obvious reasons. They're, they're, in, they're, in, a, they're in a detention setting. We'll hear those cases first. So there'll be their hearings will be held within 30 to 40 days. If you get released, your case takes the five to seven years. And what's the downside on that? Because in five and seven years, they'll have several U.S. citizen children because you give birth to even though they're here illegally, you give birth to a child here 
or, or a parent, a child here, that, that, that child's a U.S. citizen. Now, five or six years later, when ICE finds that person's been order removed, finally, now the media goes crazy, left goes crazy. Why did you arrest and deport this guy that has three U.S. children? Well, you know, because he chose to have his children, knowing that he was in, in, in immigration proceedings, he chose that route. Big things that's his, you know, ticket for, for to stay in the country. And it's just, that's just a stone cold fact. Matter of fact, when all these families came across the last couple of years, and I did an operation to go look at the families that have been ordered ruled by a judge. 30% of those families, the female is either pregnant or already had a U.S. citizen child. So handling these cases faster is easier for everybody, including the families of the of the person going to proceedings, because then you put them in a difficult position. You got U.S. citizen children, but the parents been ordered removed by a federal court. So let's get it done quickly. They'll have the due process quickly. It's a better system. Tom, we've got just a little over a minute uh, left in this segment. I guess what my question, Tom, is why can't we just march them back across the border? Why do we have to house them, give them a hearing, et cetera? Why not just send them right back across the border if we catch them? Many we send back across the border for expedited removals, but many, what they, what they found out, if they come to this country and claim fear, claim asylum, then we can't immediately remove them. They have to have a whole new process, and that's what's happened the last several years. They found the loophole in the system. They go to the border. They say a few key phrases that the cartels teach them and claim asylum, and we can't remove them unless they have their, their asylum process, and they could take years. That's the problem, and as I said, to 100 and 200, 300 interviews, Congress needs to change the system and not make it so easy to exploit and commit fraud. Because the fact of the matter is, 90% was actually 89.4. So 9 out of 10 of every Central American that comes to our border and claims asylum never gets relief from U.S. courts because they either don't qualify or they don't show up in court. So knowing that that's the real data you're facing, knowing that 9 out of 10 commit a fraudulent claim to asylum, why wouldn't Congress fix the system so it's not so easy? Tom Holman, uh, thank you so much for being with us. This is really interesting stuff, and I think you've, you've shed a lot of light on something a lot of people don't really understand that that well. So thanks very much for being on the Dan Prof Show. We will yeah. be back with more after this. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. I'm John Hinderocker from Powerline filling in for Dan tonight. And we are joined now by Andy Puzder. Andy was the uh, chief executive officer of CKE Restaurants for more than 16 years years and is currently a senior fellow at the Pepperdine University School of Public Policy and uh, the author of uh, the book, uh, The Capitalist Comeback, The Trump Boom and the Left's Plot to Stop It. And uh, Andy, you're the author of a piece at, uh, at Fox News uh, responding to uh, a claim over at CNN that Donald Trump has a, uh, a, a historically bad economic record. Uh, to tell our listeners about that. Well, it was an article by John Harwood, who's CNN's White House correspondent. And uh, it's, uh, you know, it, it, it's ridiculous. You have to ask yourself, is anybody, are they just running this up the flagpole to see if anybody will believe it? You're talking about a presidency that had the lowest unemployment rate in 50 years, historic lows for African-Americans, 
Asians, um, Hispanics, women, people with only a high school education, vet, everybody, veterans, uh, the handicapped. Uh, and um, uh, you had 20 straight months of wage gains of 3% or better. That hadn't happened since the government began recording the data in 2007. You had 24 months of more job openings than people unemployed. That had never happened for one month for any other president since they began recording the data in 2000. And for most of those months, there were over a million more job openings and people unemployed. This resulted in the highest median family income ever, uh, $68,700, the biggest one-year increase, 6.8% in 2019, and the biggest one-year decrease in the unemployment rate of 1.3 percentage points, and the lowest unemployment rate since the government began tracking that data in 1959. So you're talking about an economic record that if anybody else would be extremely proud of and that any other president, particularly a Democrat, would be highly praised for. But for Donald Trump, they try and paint it like it was some kind of a disaster. But I think the American people know this was not a disaster at all. Well, I, I, obviously, to make any kind of a case against Trump on the economy, you've got to start by blaming him for COVID, right? You've you got to attribute all the economic losses that resulted really not from COVID, but from the COVID shutdowns. You know, that's what that's what damaged the economy. And and so they've got to be attributing, you know, all the all the COVID issues to uh, to the president. Is that right? Well, well, they they clearly do. Harwood actually w- was claiming and this is something that Biden has said and Democrats claim generally that there are fewer people there will be fewer people employed uh, when he leaves office in January, assuming that he does leave office in January than there were when he took office back in January 2017. Well, what they ignore is, number one, the highest number of people ever employed in the United States was February of 2020, just before the pandemic hit. Uh, and the, the only reason that there, that there are fewer people employed today is the pandemic. You know, talking, I say this in the article, talking about Trump's economic record for the past eight months without mentioning the pandemic is like talking about, talking about Lincoln's uh, war casualties under Lincoln as compared to other presidents, but ignoring the Civil War. I mean, you can't you can't ignore the impact of this China virus. There were 20, we lost 25,000 jobs in the blink of an eye. Uh, that had never happened before. Now, the good news is, uh, over the past eight months, we've had the most historic job growth in the history of the country. We've added more jobs in the last eight months than Obama and Biden added in their entire eight years in office. I mean, we've really seen incredible historic job growth. So the economy is coming back very quickly. And part of the reason is it started off at the highest point it's ever been at. Uh, and to ignore all of that is it's just disingenuous. I mean, if they're, like I said, they're running this up the flag, flagpole to see if anything sticks. If you listen to Joe Biden, as I've been doing, obviously, for some months now, uh, the, the, only t- the only thing I can take away is that whatever President Trump has done over the last four years, Joe Biden intends to do the opposite. And, uh, and he'll, he'll increase taxes if he can get away with it. He'll, he'll uh, buy into some version of the Green New Deal, uh, et cetera. What, what do you see happening with the economy? I mean, if, if, if Joe Biden goes out and, and tries to do the opposite uh, in terms of regulation and everything else of what uh, President Trump has done, uh, where do you see the economy heading? Well, you know, we've, we've got a very recent example with everybody within almost everybody, I'm sure, is listening to recent memory. Under President Obama, would they increase taxes? They increase regulation. They discourage domestic energy production, uh, particularly on government lands. And the economy stalled. 
Uh, they even talked about a stalled economy, a stalled labor market as being the new normal. They never had 3% wage growth. They never had more job openings and people unemployed. Uh, they, so they, the, um, the unemployment rate went down, but didn't go down anywhere near the, to the number that it went to under President Trump. President Trump came in. The, the, he, the, month, the, the month he was elected, business optimism increased a historic amount. Uh, the National Federation of Independent Businesses tracks that. Those are the people that create jobs. He then cut taxes, slashed regulations, just cut the heck out of regulations, encouraged domestic energy production, and we had the most vibrant uh, jobs market, labor market in the history of the country. So now we're going to go back to the stagnation of the Obama era, assuming that we lose the Senate. Now, he, he, Trump, Biden can stall the economy with his regulatory agenda. He definitely can create roadblocks for businesses to grow and create jobs and increase wages. Uh, but if he, if we lose Georgia, if those two Georgia senators uh, turn out to be Democrats, then he's going to be able to enact things like tax increases, like the Green New Deal, you know, really things that will not only discourage business, but really destroy business. And they'll use the pandemic to do it, by the way. I mean, they've, they've been very open about this. Biden himself said that the pandemic was an opportunity to fundamentally transform America. Note, note that he didn't say this is the big problem we have to deal with. He said it's an opportunity to fundamentally transform America, and that's what. Yeah, Andy, I think that's correct. And and, and we got just under a minute left in this uh, in this segment, Andy. Uh, it seems to me that w- one of one of the policy areas that could be terribly damaging to the economy is the Green New Deal or or whatever it is that the Democrats try to implement, both by legislation but also by regulation. Talk about that a little bit. What's the impact on the economy of of making our power more expensive? Well, you know, regulations are taxes. So if, if they're talking about enacting more regulations, and that's clearly what they want to do, they're going, you're going to be increasing taxes. The Green New Deal isn't just about cutting carbon emissions. The Green New Deal is an effort to completely restructure our economy. The expense of it will be incredible. The impact on American businesses will be devastating. And if you're hearing anything to the contrary, you're just being lied to. Uh, it's a scary thought. And let's just hope that uh, the Republicans hang on to the Senate. Andy well, Puzder, sure. uh, thanks that. very much for being on the, on the Dan <laughs> Drop yeah. Show. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. I want to wish you a Merry Christmas. Show.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We've got just a short segment here, and I want to talk just a little bit about, about the COVID relief package that is finally now passing through Congress after a long delay. The delay was caused by the Democrats not wanting to do anything that might uh, help President Trump politically. And so they simply refused to agree to any deal for COVID relief until after the election. And it probably worked. Uh, The fact that there had not been a follow-up COVID relief package probably did uh, help the Democrats in the November election. And once the election is safely behind us, now uh, they're willing to bargain. And in fact, uh, they've agreed on a package with with congressional Republicans that adds up to uh, close to a trillion dollars. The point I want to make is that it seems to me that the government is doing this whole COVID 
COVID thing in exactly the wrong way. First, they put uh, businesses under. Uh, they, they stop economic activity. They create artificially a severe recession. And that was done partly by the federal government, but but primarily by orders that were coming from state governors. So, so first, what we have here is a government-created uh, recession. It wasn't caused by the virus. Uh, the virus would have had some impact on economic activity, but when the median age of people dying from it is, is in their 80s, and when a majority of deaths are in nursing homes and assisted living facilities, that is not a big economic impact. It's the shutdowns that have that have damaged and destroyed various sectors of the economy. So, so first the government created the problem. Now the government wants to solve the problem by handing out another trillion dollars, which the federal government does not have. It is going to be borrowed, uh, which is basically to say printed, and it is going to drive the national debt up by... Uh, something like $900 billion, something close to a, a trillion dollars. And it's going to drive the, uh, the national debt to approximately $28 trillion or about $85,000 per person. That's 340000 I think, for a, for a family of, uh, of four. And I think when we look back on President Trump's term in office, he did a terrific job in most respects governing as a conservative president. I was I was pleasantly surprised, in fact, delighted by most of the things that, that President Trump has done in office. But the one thing he has not done, hasn't really tried to do, is restrain government spending. And that is an issue, uh, a traditional conservative issue. Conservatives have always wanted less government, less spending, more limited government, less intrusive government. And that's one thing we have not gotten in uh, four years with uh, President Trump. The government continues to spend money at a record pace, and it continues to spend money that we don't have, uh, with the bill uh, being passed on to our children and our descendants to be paid uh, eventually by them with uh, with interest. So, so that to me is the is the is the real downside of the. Uh, of the COVID epidemic. Uh, we have the government-induced economic harm, and then we have the government supposedly riding to the rescue to give people a trillion dollars worth of uh, money in various forms uh, to uh, alleviate a harm that never should have been inflicted in the first place. We'll be back with more after these messages. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. I am John Hinderocker from Powerline, filling in for Dan tonight. And we are joined now by Kevin Brock, former assistant director of intelligence for the FBI, and the former Principal Deputy Director of the National Counterterrorism Center. Kevin, thanks for being on the program. John, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Kevin, you've got a piece at the Hill uh, about one of everybody's favorite stories in the news right now, and that is Eric Swalwell and the Chinese spy. And I think a lot of us find this story entertaining in part because uh, of who Swalwell is and just the, the kind of... Uh, prurient element here, but but for any of our listeners who might not have kept up to speed on this, just give us the short version of, of what this story is all about. Well, I think it's, it's kind of amusing to the folks because uh, everybody knows Eric Swalwell, mainly because he decided to run for president as a 
two or three term congressman out of an obscure district in California. Uh, that didn't get him a lot of attention. But then uh, after he decided not to run for president, he became one of the strongest voices out there against President Trump and uh, the whole uh, idea of Russia collusion and the Trump campaign, as well as uh, you know what was fueling the impeachment push. He was very loud in his criticisms, and he was uh, very indignant that any president might be compromised by a foreign intelligence uh, service or a government. And so the dripping hypocrisy to find out now that his own office was infiltrated by a suspected Chinese intelligence operative uh, is it's hard to ignore. And um, and so he's. You know, he's paying the price for drawing that kind of attention to health and, and taking uh, a moral perch and then being discovered to have no clothes himself. So, uh, uh, talk about I, I try to point out that Swalwell is just, it, it's fun to point, you know, point at him and, and, and mock him a little bit, but he's just one small part of this larger story uh, and a growing concern in the intelligence community and with the FBI about the threat that the Communist Chinese Party is posing to this country. And I don't think um, we as a people or even our policymakers have really fully come to grips with that. So so Swalwell uh, got to be good friends with a Chinese national, a young woman whose name I think is Fang Fang or Fang Fang. Is that right? Christine Fong or Fang Fang. I've seen it both ways. Yeah. Yeah, and so she's a Chinese national. She was in the United States, and apparently she cozied up to a number of American politicians. Yeah, that's what the the emerging story looks like. Um, she was part of a, um, a not unusual operation by Chinese intelligence to um, to take steps to get close to emerging politicians, those they assessed to be friendly to the <clears throat> to their interests inside the United States government, um, you know, bundling money for campaigns. In the Swalwell case, it looks like the, she successfully placed an intern uh, in Swalwell's office. Um, pretty bold and um, and very effective from an from a trademark uh, tradecraft standpoint. So, um, you know, and then. You know, there are allegations that she close, got close to other unnamed politicians and and, uh, and may have uh, used her um, may have used her attractiveness to compromise some politicians uh, elsewhere in the in the country. Oh, that's still, I think, being ferreted out. Uh, but again, this is trade craft. These are operational techniques that aren't unusual and. Uh, and the FBI has has seen deployed elsewhere across government and in industry by the Chinese Communist Party. Now, in the specific case of Eric Swalwell, it does seem pretty clear that he had a romantic relationship with uh, Miss uh, the Fang, uh, based on the fact that he refused to answer that question and said that the answer could be classified. Which, <laughs> you know, it wouldn't be classified if the answer was no. Uh, I don't suppose. <laughs> yeah, he's. He finds himself painted into a, a corner. There's no doubt about it. Uh, the most sensitive aspect of all of this is that almost inexplicably, as a, as a two-term uh, congressman, he was placed on the House, um, the, the, the Select House Intelligence Committee. Um, 
and with really no backgrounds. There's really not a strong explanation or a logical reason why he would have been placed on such a sensitive uh, committee. His his prior experience before becoming a congressman is as, was as a, a prosecutor and uh, as a town councilman in Dublin, California. You know, those aren't normally the uh, qualifiers for uh, being placed on that committee. So that's a little bit of a head scratcher. He's still on the committee. Obviously, Republicans are making a, a big deal about that. If if your office has been infiltrated by Chinese uh, Communist Party operatives and uh, you were either unwitting or didn't care to be too witting about that fact, then how can we trust you with hearing about the nation's most sensitive secrets? So, you know, that's a that's an issue uh, and a bona fide issue. And I think uh, Democrat leadership has to has to wrestle with that. Congressmen, for your listeners, may not may not know they don't have to undergo a regular um, background investigation like the rest of us who held classified uh, clearances in government. Uh, by virtue of their election, they're granted access to secrets. But normal procedures for people to hold that type of trust uh, in the counterintelligence uh, in the intel community, it's standard co- counterintelligence uh, steps, and that includes polygraphs. And, and I think you know, one of the questions Congressman Swalwell to be the answer is the uh, counterintelligraph. So, so it's pretty obvious why China would want to get one of its spies close to a congressman who serves on the House Intelligence Committee. I guess that doesn't require any further explanation. But it's not just about Eric Swalwell, right? I mean, there's a whole Chinese effort to get its agents um, in close contact with American politicians. I mean, I came out on the news, I think, a, a year or two ago at least now, that Dianne Feinstein's longtime driver apparently was a, was a communist spy. Yeah, that that was out there as well. Um, look, make no mistake, the intelligence services of the People's Republic of China are very sophisticated. They've become better and better over the years, uh, especially within the last 20 years. Um, they weren't that sophisticated just 20, 25, 30 years ago. Now they are highly sophisticated. Uh, they they leverage their greatest national resource, which is their population. Uh, the sheer numbers of people that they have available to spy is daunting. They send tens of thousands of students and academics here every year. Um, they are uh, forming joint ventures with U.S. companies. They're welcoming U.S. companies into their market, but there's a price to pay for all of that. And that price is cooperation with the Chinese Communist Party. And we've seen that with some of the major companies that have are doing business in China, the way they've compromised certain values and certain policies to conform with the demands of, of that um, of the Chinese Communist Party. And, uh, and we do know, and this is a, a really important point, based on a law, a Chinese law passed in 2017, any Chinese citizen who has interaction with a foreign national, whether in business or in travel, has to cooperate with Chinese intelligence in providing uh, information to them uh, when they ask for it. So uh, that's under that's under penalty of law. They have to do that. So um, you know, and and I'm, and I, again, I'm not quite sure we as a country or our policymakers fully understand 
the depth or extent of the Chinese intelligence network. Well, we got about a minute and a half in, left in this segment, Kevin, and I guess that's the last question I want to ask you. In, in the Eric Swalwell case, uh, Ms. Fong's uh, cover apparently got blown. She was identified as a spy, and she disappeared, obviously went back to China, and the FBI gave Swalwell a, a, what they call a defensive briefing, I think, in, in, uh, in 2015. But this is, this is, it's not just a one-off uh, event. I mean, as, you, as you've said, this is a major effort by the Chinese communists. And, and what is our government doing on a, on a bigger scale to try to uh, respond to it? Well, what they're doing is not enough, uh, in my opinion. And I've uh, worked counterintelligence throughout my career in the FBI, um, mostly Russian counterintelligence, but uh, I managed a fair amount of, uh, of uh, what we call, used to call PRC, counterintelligence, People's Republic of China. Um, part of it is uh, having a national strategy to counter the Chinese method of gathering intelligence, which is different than the Russian method of gathering intelligence and the Iranian and North Korean methods. We'll be uh, right back with uh, more from Kevin Brock after these messages. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is The Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. We are talking with Kevin Brock, former assistant director of intelligence uh, for the FBI and uh, principal deputy director of the National Counterterrorism Center. Kevin, I want to move on to a second piece that you have written recently, also in The Hill. And, and this has to do with the recent cyber attack that has been in the news and has been widely attributed to uh, to the Russians. And I want to start by just asking you to describe what, what are we talking about? What what was this cyber attack and what do we really know about it? Uh, John, this was a major uh, intrusion into government networks of key government agencies. Uh, I don't think we can overstate the uh, the impact of of all of this. It's it's. Uh, it's historic, it's extensive, and it is damaging. Essentially, a foreign adversary, uh, whom many to believe believe to be uh, Russian, but uh, that assessment's based on certain signatures or markers or indicators. It's not. It's, that's a conclusion that's not drawn on hard evidence yet. Um, but that's the nature of cybersecurity intrusions. They're very hard to attribute. Uh, but even if it, assuming it was a, a Russian. Uh, operation or some other hostile intelligence agency like the Chinese or the Iranians. Uh, it is historic uh, and it is deeply embarrassing, frankly, uh, that we would allow this type of brazen uh, intrusion into sensitive government networks. So um, it's something that we really need to pay attention to. I don't think we paid adequate attention to it, frankly, uh, from a government uh, cybersecurity strategy viewpoint, but uh, but this is a this is a wake up call. So, what are examples of the kinds of things that a foreign adversary might might learn through through this kind of intrusion? So, when it's a when it's an intrusion by a hostile intelligence service, they're they're not necessarily interested in 
stealing data or exploiting data like a criminal enterprise would. They want to just be present on a network and vacuum up information and data. They want to identify individuals of interest inside the government. They want to read emails. They want to read other traffic uh, communications. They're searching for um, the uh, activities and intents of the and intents of these various agencies. Uh, they're looking for policy discussions. They're looking for indicators of um, of how they that country itself might have been compromised uh, by our government. So there's a number of goals that they're trying to achieve. Um, the and then perhaps the most um, insidious or potentially dangerous goal that they're trying to accomplish is to implant software malware uh, on our networks and in our systems so that if someday uh, you know there's open hostility between the countries uh, and things get hot they can start directly interfering with our command and control systems with the way we communicate with the way we move around goods and services, the way we we have uh, we deliver power in this country, you know, critical infrastructure uh, interfering with our critical infrastructure is a, a major goal of a hostile adversary. Um, NSA directors in the past have have readily have already testified that they're concerned that there are, without naming them, two or three countries in the world who can do that today. Uh, who could start interfering with our critical infrastructure? So, these are the these are the dangers and these are the concerns. And this is not a brand new problem either. I mean, I, I remember uh, during the Obama administration, it came out that a foreign power had penetrated the White House computer system and uh, had had been monitoring information there apparently for some time along the lines that you're talking about. And, and and at least as it was reported, some friendly intelligence service, I'm guessing the Israelis, figured it out and, and told us, blew the whistle on them. But for some time, somebody was monitoring uh, White House computers. No, that's exactly right. Not only that, um, but it's widely believed and to be attributable to the, uh, to the People's Republic of China that they stole uh, what is called the SF-86s or the forms that all of us who had um, top secret clearances in the government, the form that we filled out, um, those forms uh, amounting to about 22 million Americans were stolen, uh, stolen off of Office of Personnel Management servers. Why that sensitive data was sitting on an OPM server, I don't know. Uh, but it wasn't well protected. It wasn't protected by dual factor authentication. It was an easy steal. Uh, as a matter of fact, the Chinese would have been remiss if they didn't try to steal it uh, from their own viewpoint. So it was it was available. They grabbed it. And uh, and this is, as I mentioned in my article, this is crown jewel level intelligence and data. Uh, this should have been protected like Fort Knox, but it wasn't. And it's indicative of a general lackadaisical attitude towards cybersecurity that has persisted in this country for the last 20 to 25 years. Um, you know, we just have not caught up with the real realization that the internet is here to stay and the bad guys are going to, going to exploit the internet and are going to exploit software to steal our stuff. And, um, and we haven't had, we really haven't had any major pieces of legislation passed in the last 20 years that would make it harder 
for that all to occur. Uh, the, the defenses that we've put in place uh, to stop malware are inadequate. Uh, the, the Obama administration itself characterized it as a, an Atari game in an Xbox world. You know, we're just we're just years behind where we should be on these types of basic blocking and tackling defenses. And, uh, and it's to our shame and embarrassment. You know, nuclear war was prevented for decades basically by mutual assured uh, deterrence, mutual assured destruction. <laughs> Uh, we had uh, nukes. The Russians had nukes, but so so neither side uh, dared to use them. My hope, uh, Kevin, is that we've penetrated the Russians and the Chinese to the same degree, so that if they started uh, messing with our infrastructure, we could do the same to them. Is that true? Do you think? And if so, is that an adequate countermeasure? Well, uh, my comment on that would be strictly opinion. I, I I'm obviously not privy to those types of operations, and even if I were, I, the, the classification would prevent me from to commenting definitively on that. But I share your hope, and I, I share an optimism that our, uh, we do have some pretty sophisticated offensive capabilities that have been developed by key intelligence community agencies. And if they're not deploying those in, uh, in that fashion, then shame on us. So uh, I share your hope. Kevin, we've got just under a minute to go in this segment. In your uh, column at the at the Hill, you you talk about Christopher Krebs. Just take a moment, if you would, to explain where he fits in here. He testified before the uh, the Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee in the Senate, and uh, he reiterated that sentiment, made the statement again, and uh, and also claimed that this you know uh, the, he had no evidence. Uh, that there was any type of form manipulation or intrusion or interference with our with that election. Unfortunately for Mr. Krebs, at the same time he was testifying, the intrusion that we were just speaking about came to light, and uh, all of which happened on his watch. All right, we'll we'll leave it there. Uh, thank you, Kevin Brock, for being on the program. My pleasure, John. Thanks for having me. The fire is slowly dying, and my dear, we're still goodbyeing. As long as you love me so, let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. I'm John Hinderocker from Powerline, filling in for Dan tonight. And we are joined now by Dr. Roger Klein. And, and I'm calling you Dr. Klein, Roger, because you really are a doctor, unlike some people who like to use that title, having both a, a, a medical doctor degree as well as a, a JD. Thank you for having me. So, so I want to talk about your piece in the American Spectator, uh, Roger, where you talk about uh, this, this COVID relief bill that's just been passed the fact that, that, that the issues have been split into a couple of different bills and a hang-up is liability protection. Let's just start by explaining to our listeners, what are we talking about here in terms of liability protection? Well, I think at this point what we're talking about is giving a shield to um, not, not only to businesses, but it would include businesses, but also to nonprofit organizations, um, uh, uh, schools, that, you know, other, other, uh, other areas in which uh, – which could potentially be subject to lawsuits for people, for example, contracting uh, 
COVID-19, either through, uh, through patronizing those institutions or by working at those institutions. Uh, I, the, the idea would be um, there's, a, there's a huge room, there's a, a large, large room for, for people to sue um, right now, other people uh, for blame, to blame them for getting what is really a contagious disease that's almost impossible to control. But, you know, if you, you, you kind of, you could delve in, you know, if you delve into, you know, people can accuse uh, a business or, 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 um, or a church uh, of uh, not providing proper protections uh, to them. And you think about the number of, of cases, COVID cases there have been, and they're destined to be in the months to come, it could just be an overwhelming burden of litigation if the courts start recognizing that as a valid cause of action. You know, I, I caught, I, I think I can prove that I caught COVID in your store and now you're liable to me. Yeah, I mean, I think, so, so if you if you liken it back to the way we, we used to treat um, uh, infectious respiratory viruses, consider, for example, influenza, the flu. If, if you, if we assume that this, this COVID-19 is two to three times more contagious than flu, uh, think about and, and by the way, with with a with a long incubation period and most most people not even realizing they have it. Think about about um, the how um, how meaningful uh, the loss lawsuits would be in terms of trying to to blame somebody for contracting it for for being certain of where uh, where one contracted it and and uh, and and even for uh, for the idea that. Um, that you that 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 a, a particular entity or or group or or uh, procedure could be uh, could be held responsible uh, for again contracting what is a what is, what is a very contagious uh, disease uh, over which we have little control, by the way. Right, and and so and so it seems pretty obvious that liability protection should be a part of what's being passed at the federal level, but it's not. So what's the hang-up? Well, I think it it's. And, and again, it's important because there, there's 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 an enormous room for for lawsuits, which can which can really uh, uh, even even if the people don't win, and and you know I suspect they wouldn't for the reasons I suggested. You can you can really run up a lot of uh, legal bills uh, just just to get these cases uh, dismissed. And there, there's been over I think there's been over 6,500 cases filed already. Um, so, so, so the hangup is is that is the, the um, plaintiff lawyers mostly, but you know the, the trial bar uh, has is tightly allied with the with the Democratic Party. They always have been, and uh, and and they're really blocking uh, any type of litigation reform. Is you know they oppose this. They're big funders of the party, and they they oppose uh, any type of litigation reform. They 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 typically do. Uh, Senator Durbin, who's in charge of or responsible for for this area, is is um, seeking that to be chair of the Judiciary Committee. If uh, if, for example, the uh, Democrats were to take the two Georgia seats, and uh, and so there's a uh, the, he he has he he has an opponent from uh, believe it or not he has a left, and he has an opponent from his left. Uh, uh, Sheldon uh, Whitehouse, who they, they, they're they're going to be uh, in in firm opposition to striking any sort of reasonable deal with um, with Republicans uh, to try to uh, protect businesses, but also 
you know, I, I think the idea is if somebody's truly negligent or truly causes harm, most of us believe that there should be recourse and a means of compensation. But the idea is really to to to, uh, to stem what what mostly would be a, a flood of litigation that uh, that that it, it, um, in which. Uh, you know, there really isn't a responsible party. We're talking with Dr. Roger Klein, and we will be back with more uh, with Dr. Klein after these messages. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is, this is the Dan Proft Show. We are back on the Dan Proft Show with Dr. Roger Klein. And Roger, before the break, we were talking about the fact that it seems pretty obvious that the federal government ought to implement uh, protection for businesses, churches, and others uh, so that they can't be sued uh, because somebody claims you caught COVID uh, at, at their establishment. But, but apparently that's not getting done. At least it hasn't, it hasn't gotten done yet. And, and the fundamental reason is because the America's uh, – uh, plaintiffs' lawyers are major contributors to the uh, Democratic Party, and Chuck Schumer and his colleagues won't do it. Is that basically where it sits? Yeah, I think you, you summed it up well. It's a, it's, it's a political issue. It's not there's not uh, there's not been a, a strong uh, or even any push really, uh, at least from the Democratic side, to try to strike uh, a compromise, um, which. Um, you know, this again. This is a, a, a critical issue in today's world, uh, where you, uh, where where a lot of businesses are kind of hanging by a string, especially those that serve the public. And these lawsuits could could cause uh, really, really uh, big problems for them. Roger, I happened to be at uh, Mar-a-Lago for an event about five days ago, and the Washington Post ran a kind of an expose story saying that people at that event weren't wearing masks. Well, it's certainly true. I wasn't wearing a mask. And, um, you know, I live in a state where we've had draconian shutdowns and mask mandates and so on. What, what, what is experience telling us about how well these, these kinds of mitigation measures actually work? So, so we, what we're dealing with, you know, again, is, is I suggested in the context of liability is a virus that's, that's readily transmissible with close and, and, and prolonged contact. So, you know, you spend some time together. In a close, in a close, in close contact with somebody who has it, and there's a pretty good chance uh, uh, that it's going to be that you're going to get it. You know, they, it, it, it transmits very uh, easily. So, really, the best way not to get it if you don't want to get infected is to stay away from other people. Uh, that that being said, it's a it's a misimpression, and and I think um, uh, m- much of which has been driven by by media uh, hysteria. And hype it, 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 is what 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 what's been seen is that we focus very intently on the sickest people, and they're the ones who have made the news. There initially they were the ones who were tested, but there was this whole body of people who were infected, and and never even became cases, and never once came to medical attention. And those people they they get infections, and they they're mild or they 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 have no symptoms at all, and and they they're walking around with it now. The, the justification for the mitigation measures is uh, is in some respects these folks because they don't know they have symptoms. They 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 don't know they're sick. They don't they don't seem to have have this disease, which 
for a very, very small minority of people is, is quite serious. But on the other hand, it, it makes us have to look at this disease and understand that for all the, for the number of reported cases, there could be easily be 10 times the, the number of uh, infections. So the number of people who have been infected but, but um, didn't get sick or didn't get seriously sick uh, is still easily 10 times, five times, maybe low end. But, but, but I think the, the point is, is there's a lot more uh, infections. So when you talk about uh, protecting yourself, you're, you're, the, the real way to protect yourself is not, is not to go around other people. That's sort of the best you can do. These masks, in my view, are a sideshow. I don't think we know for sure whether or not they help or work. Um, the, there's been a couple of studies uh, randomized trials, only two. That's the gold standard for evaluating masks. Uh, one evaluated cloth coverings, which is really what we're talking about. Um, I believe it was in Thailand. And it found that people, and, and it was generally about respiratory illnesses, the people who wore those uh, actually got sicker than the people who didn't wear them. Um, of course, the theory is if you're protecting others, but these are, you know, the, you know, the uh, infectious organisms or or viruses go both go in both directions, and and what we did see was that people who wore masks got sicker, or wore cloth coverings got sicker than those who didn't. There was a study in Denmark looking at mask wearing, and and it, it and those were I think mostly medical masks, and it didn't seem to have an effect. Um, we we haven't that's measurable. We haven't seen it here. We have um, we we see the virus spreading quite readily. Uh, in many parts of the country, much of the country, most of it is under mask uh, mandates, at least in, in, in indoor settings when you're near other people, yet we're seeing an explosion in cases. So I think um, the, the idea that they work uh, is, is, not, is neither proved nor disproved. We don't have good clinical evidence. Um, either way, we kind of have um, inference by blocking droplets, so we don't really know. But if, they're, if, they, if they have some effect, it's not likely to be a, a great one and it's it's certainly not going to affect the overall course of the epidemic we're talking with dr roger klein roger we've got about two minutes left and i want to turn to one more topic and that is the vaccine which is now being rolled out or vaccines what do you think are, are these vaccines going to be the silver bullet that that take care of this disease and allow the rest of us to get back to normal yeah, so, so yes. So, so, so first of all, I think we need to give great credit to the president, to Operation Warp Speed, to Health and Human Services and the others uh, that have been involved. Uh, obviously, the private sector is bringing these, these uh, vaccines to market to, to, to people, but it, the government helped facilitate that. We helped, certainly helped develop the Moderna vaccine and the regulatory changes and, and pathway changes and creative approaches that the Trump administration has uh, has uh, brought forth have been critical in, in bringing these vaccines. So, so what I would say, and again, this is going to be different than, than uh, probably what, what's commonly heard. In my view, this, this epidemic was going to be over shortly as a public health crisis. Uh, it, the virus isn't going to disappear magically, but as long, once we get our vulnerable people uh, vaccinated, uh, then we're going to stop having the deaths. We, we won't have nearly the number of deaths. Most of them, it's very much age-related and morbidity-related, comorbidity, people are sick. So once we get rid of 
uh, once we, we we vaccinate those people, the, the sicker, uh, vulnerable people, the older people, uh, we're not going to have the serious illnesses, we're not going to have the hospitalizations, and we're not going to have the deaths. You know, what, it, you know two, three months, once we get these folks vaccinated, I, I you know, I think it's, it's, it's a public health crisis. It's pretty much over. All right. Thanks for that optimistic take. And thanks uh, for being on the program, Dr. Roger Klein. We'll be right back after these messages. Listen to podcast of the show at danproffshow.com. In this uh, short segment, I want to talk about education. Uh, There's a lot of issues, a lot of important issues, but there is nothing more important than how we teach our children, how we teach them, above all, about our history, about who we are as a people, about about where we came from and and how we came to be the, the people that we are today. And education of the kind that I grew up with and that you probably grew up with is very much in the sights of the left. Uh, they want to fundamentally transform America, and to do that, they have to fundamentally transform our public schools, and they're doing it. They're turning our public schools into indoctrination factories where they are teaching our young people that America is an evil country, that free enterprise is a, is a failed uh, economic system, uh, that the history of America is a history of uh, oppression and, and, and cruelty, and, and on and on. And I think if we conservatives are to have any hope of, of prevailing in the long run in the culture, we have got to pay close and careful attention to what is being done to our public schools. So I'll give you just one example of that. Right now in Minnesota, where I live, there is a committee that is revising the education standards for grades uh, K through 12 in the field of social studies. And the way this works in my state is that there are, oh, five, six, eight different subject areas, mathematics, you know, science, social studies, whatever. And every 10 years, the standards um, get get replaced by new standards. And that's happening with social studies now in 2021. And the committee that is doing this is all appointed by a far-left administration headed by Governor Tim Walls. And so people on my staff have gone through these proposed new standards, which have been published now in draft form, and compared them to what went before. And I don't have time to go through the whole thing. There's a lot that could be said. But, for example, benchmarks, as they call them, relating to basic facts of world history are being dropped. For example, World War I, out. World War II, out. The Holocaust, out. Well, you might ask, if that stuff is all out, uh, what's in? Well, again, as you, as you probably would suspect, there is a lot of stuff about critical race theory, about America as an oppressor nation, the, the benchmarks relating to Native Americans uh, who comprise between 1% and 2% of the state's population have been tripled from five benchmarks to 15. And, and I'll just read one of the benchmarks that's, that's new in the current, the current social studies draft. 
This is a, this is an objective that all the public schools in Minnesota supposedly, if this goes through, are going to have to follow. It says, "quote Learn to recognize unfairness, stereotypes, and bias on the individual level, e.g., biased speech, and injustice at the institutional or systemic level, e.g., discrimination." Close quote. That's one of the benchmarks. That is a benchmark for first-grade students. These people are proposing to indoctrinate first-graders in this theory of white privilege, critical race theory, and so forth, um, institutional or systemic uh, racism. They're going all the way down to the first grade. So this stuff is going to happen across the country if we don't conserve, if we conservatives don't uh, spring into action and do our best to stop. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the best of the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. I am John Hinderocker from Powerline filling in for Dan tonight. And we are joined now by Francis Menton, the Manhattan Contrarian. Francis, thanks for being on the program. Uh, great to be here. Thank you for having me. Francis, you've got a, a post at your website, uh, which is titled, The Upcoming Biden Administration Calls for Extreme Levels of Reality Denial. And what this is all about is the 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 climate and measures that are taken allegedly to uh, to change the climate. Uh, correct. I think somehow we've gotten the idea that if with only enough government coercion, we can change the weather, probably by making you poorer and by making gasoline and electricity more expensive and harder to get. And that's going to make the weather better or colder or something. I, I think people actually believe this or certainly the incoming president does. Well, he may believe it. I don't know. But there's also a lot of people who are making money on it. You know, uh, the, the so-called green industries, if, if the Democrats get their way, those so-called green industries, they're, they're, they're due to, to reap uh, trillions of dollars uh, in benefits. I have no idea how much they can actually get through Congress. But, of course, wind energy, solar energy, those things exist 100 percent on government subsidies and handouts. The minute the subsidies and handouts are withdrawn or reduced, the solar and wind energy facilities certainly stop being built and quickly get closed and and scrapped uh, because they're totally a creature of, of uh, subsidies. And if you've ever read, and you probably have many times, the solar and wind are now cheaper than uh, than electricity, particularly produced by fossil fuels. That is a complete deception, which comes from failure to account for the costs of intermittency. So, of course, solar doesn't work at night or on a cloudy day. Wind doesn't work when it's calm. So you can get a cheap kilowatt hour of electricity out of a solar facility or a wind facility, but you can't keep your lights on all day and all night that way. So you have to have an entire backup facility and the next thing you know, the price of your electricity has doubled and tripled. So that's the way it works. No, that's exactly right. And so so the most efficient wind turbines produce electricity about 40% of the time. Where I live in Minnesota, you know, solar energy is ridiculous. 
Uh, it produces energy, uh, electricity, something like 17 or 18 percent of the time. In the winter, they don't even bother to shovel the snow and ice off the panels because it's not <laughs> even worth it to pay high school kids to to do that. So so what do you do during the 60 percent of the time when, when the wind turbine isn't doing anything and the 80-something percent when the solar panels aren't doing anything? The answer is you burn natural gas. And so there are all these new natural gas uh, facilities being built and 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 most of the time that is where the electricity is really coming from not wind or solar and what that means is that the wind and the solar are just an unneeded redundancy representing a huge additional cost uh i i think you've got that exactly right now then people talk about if we just build enough wind and solar facilities we can get up to generating 100 percent of our power from wind and solar uh and uh, you find out that as you get up to 30 and 40 and 50% of your power from wind and solar, you can't get any higher. It doesn't matter how many you build because you still have to deal with the night and you still have to deal with the calm and the calm night for that matter when you get nothing from wind and solar. And if you're going for 100% of your energy from wind and solar, that means you have to get rid of all your natural gas and all that's left is batteries. And, and the batteries it turns out, cost enormous amounts of money, uh, as much as the full amount of the GDP of a jurisdiction, if you can believe that, to make enough batteries to get you through an entire year without fossil fuel backup, which is ridiculous. Nobody will ever do it or even come close. No, that's exactly right. And, of course, why would anyone do deliberately go out of our way to get electricity get energy from highly inefficient and, frankly, obsolete sources. Um, and the answer, of course, is, well, we're trying to save the planet. Well, putting aside what you think about the whole global warming theory, the fact is, regardless of what we do, we've got people like China and India who have no intention of impoverishing themselves to satisfy Joe Biden and Al Gore. China, in particular, is playing them like a violin. It's it couldn't be more ridiculous. In the case of India, India has been completely honest. I, I have on my blog some quotes from the Indian environmental minister who has said things like, we are not going to fail to develop. You did, we haven't, and we're going to do it. <laughs> he says things like that completely up front, and we're going to use our coal. And he says that too. Oh, in China, they say the most completely preposterous, deceptive things, like we aim to peak our usage of electricity 10 years from now. And then they go out and build two or 300 new coal plants and hope nobody's watching and nobody calls them out. It's just completely deceptive and fraudulent. Yeah, that's right. I mean, when, these, when leaders of countries like China uh, announce goals, uh, 10, 20, 30, 40 years out into the future, uh, at which time they'll be long gone and nobody will remember. You know, I mean, it's completely meaningless. But as you say, they're going to continue uh, building their CO2 emissions to a peak for the next decade. That's what, that's what they openly say. China, and, and I have this in, in some of my recent blog posts, China has 240-something gigawatts of coal power plants under development right now, which constitutes more than all the coal power capacity of the United States of America today. 
and they're building it new. That doesn't count what they already have, which is a multiple of ours. But they're building more than we have, so, so that if we shut it all down tomorrow, they would replace it within a couple of years, and the world emissions would not go down by one lousy uh, nanoton of carbon dioxide. Another thing you write about in this uh, this excellent piece at uh, Manhattan Contrarian, Francis, is is the games that companies uh, are, are forced to play to to go along with this this Potemkin village that the uh, Greenies are are building, and. Um, uh, BP, British British uh, Petroleum, uh, uh, is is um, is is buying forests, essentially buying carbon offsets. How does that work? I, I have no idea how it works. Um, as far as I know, the forest is already there. So, how does it go from being a, a regular old forest into a massive carbon offset because somebody conned BP into paying a hundred million dollars for it? Uh, I guess, you know, I own a few acres of forest uh, out in the country around here. I, I wonder if I can get BP to pay me. Of course, the forest is already there, but right. <laughs> what the hell? I, and and that's BP. I mean, every one of these companies has a different uh, fraudulent strategy. I, and a different blog post just a few days before I wrote about Chevron and Chevron's uh, uh, scam is they're telling everybody we are – uh, reducing the carbon emissions that we uh, uh, put out in the process of production. So we're reducing, for example, the methane leaks. Well, okay, they're in the oil business. I mean, <laughs> who are they really fooling here? Nuts. And, 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 of course, what does happen is that they, these companies waste a lot of money, and that cost gets passed on to the, the, the folks like us who buy gasoline. Another point you make in this in this piece is that is just terrific, Francis, is about uh, North Face, the company that owns uh, North Face and makes those those uh, jackets, which I take it must be popular with liberals, because uh, well, tell you tell the story, Francis. What what are they up to? Yeah, North Face is a maker of uh, winter and outdoor stuff, jackets, not just jackets like ski parkas and snow pants, and also tents and other such things. Well, those are made out of um, organic compounds, which come from oil, almost entirely. I mean, some, some from natural gas, but almost entirely from oil. It seems that they don't even know it. So some oil company or oil services company, I think the name of it is Innovex, uh, ordered a few hundred uh, North Face jackets for their employees like as a uh, corporate giveaway and uh, North Face got the order and figured out these people were in the oil business and played holier with that and said we don't sell to oil companies and yeah, that kind of sums up the whole green mania in one uh, in one anecdote it is a complete uh, divorce from reality we're going to be back with uh, more with Francis Menton after these uh, messages the more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show.
Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We are talking with Francis Menton, the Manhattan Contrarian. If you have not been reading his website, ManhattanContrarian.com, you really should. It is, uh, it is excellent. Francis, I want to talk about your most recent post at uh, Manhattan Contrarian, where you draw a contrast between the states of New York and, and Florida. Talk, talk about that a little bit. What, what did you compare there? Well, this particular post uh, is mainly focused on the question of the response to the COVID-19 pandemic uh, and how that has turned out both in terms of health results and in terms of economic results for the two states of New York and Florida. I mean, before getting farther, I should point out that I've had quite a number of posts over the years about contrasting New York and Florida which really are opposite poles of the policy spectrum in terms of how a state might uh, react to public policy in terms of taxes, in terms of spending, in terms of regulation. And New York is the, maybe along with California now, is the archetype of high tax, high spend, and high regulate. And Florida is pretty much the other end of the spectrum. I mean, there may be a few states that are even farther, but Florida's pretty far. And just as, as one statistic, uh, Florida has 21 million people, New York has 20 million people, but Florida's state budget is about 90 billion a year, and New York's is 177 billion a year. So wow. almost double, and it has fewer people. It, it's it's incredible to believe, and it's not like we really do different things. I mean, Florida spends one-third the amount of money for K-12 education, and they have more students. So, And they get better results on the national test. So that's just a, an intro to New York versus Florida. But I was particularly contrasting in this post the response to the COVID-19 virus. So would you like me to go into some detail on that? Yeah, let's talk about that. I just spent four days down in Florida in Palm Beach. It was it was wonderful. Uh, and among other things, I could actually eat in restaurants, which is a change for me. So yeah, let's talk about that. Well, here, and I am in Manhattan. I'm speaking to you from the beautiful island of Manhattan, where all indoor dining in restaurants of any kind has been closed by order of the governor. And Various other orders out there, we have a pretty much universal mask mandate for any time you are in public for anybody over the age of two. Uh, and my grandson just turned two, so he now has to wear a mask when he goes outside. Um, we have uh, pretty much all concerts have been shut down. The theater, the Broadway theater and the off-Broadway theater are all shut. Lincoln Center is shut. Carnegie Hall is shut. And I, I mean, I could go on and on and on and on with this. It's it's uh, it's a very very sad situation. The subways are empty, um, although they're running at federal expense, apparently now. But so that's the New York uh, situation. And in Florida, it's very much the opposite. You've just been there and seen it. They had some restrictions early on. They lifted a lot of them in June. They lifted the rest of them in September. Uh, this, state is pretty much completely open for business at this point, and the governor has been quoted as saying, uh, we're not shutting anything down again. So that's where Florida is. And then what I did was I compared a couple of things. 
uh, between Florida and New York. One is health results from these two different approaches. And the other is economic results. The incredible thing is that Florida has better health results. Um, its total deaths per million population is just over half of New York's at this point. And you might say part of that is because of their early close, close down. But if you try to say that, you find out that in the latest round where New York is completely closed down and Florida is completely open, New York is running more deaths on a daily basis. So there's, there's nothing you can find in the data to show that New York's approach versus Florida's has had any health success whatsoever. However, New York City has an unemployment rate which is double that of Florida, 12% versus 6 We're seeing the same thing in the upper Midwest where I live. The five states of Minnesota, Wisconsin, Iowa, the two Dakotas have followed radically different paths in terms of COVID mitigation strategies, uh, with Minnesota being the harshest, most draconian, uh, liberty-loving uh, Wisconsin being much more... Uh, relaxed about about uh, shutdowns people are now going over to uh, wisconsin to eat dinner for example because their restaurants are open and ours are shut uh the, the dakotas especially south dakota uh, south dakota never had any kind of order no shutdown no mask mandate and if you track new covid cases among those five states despite very different policy uh preferences there's no difference I can't say I'm surprised by it. I mean, my remark, and I try to follow the data on, on the virus in, in a lot of detail and pretty closely, and my remark is the virus does its own thing, and it doesn't pay any attention to what people are trying to do to stop it. I actually know quite a number of people who have had it or have had family members who have had it. Uh, I don't know anybody who's even gotten really sick from it. I know plenty of people who've had it. The most amazing thing is people who've had it, their husband never got it, their kids never got it, their parents never got it, and they had it, even though it's supposed to be the most contagious thing ever. Uh, and I know numerous examples like that where it just hadn't spread around families. Nobody knows why. Uh, sometimes it spreads rapidly in, a, in an indoor venue. Nobody knows why. Uh, but certainly, I think it's completely established at this point that masks are a total waste of time, just a total waste of time. And you go out on the street here in New York, and everybody's wearing it, for the first, except me. So for the first time yesterday, I'm walking home from the subway, and the guy walking the other way says, wear a mask, shouts at me. <laughs> Francis, we've got just over a minute left. Uh, you live okay. in Manhattan what, what do you see as the future of New York City? You know, we got multiple things going on: COVID, we got crime, we got high taxes, liberal policies. Uh, how is, is New York going to come back from all this? Well, I, I, I one of the things I've written about many times on my blog is the effect of these progressive policies, and sadly, the effect is not immediate collapse. The the effect, if you look around at jurisdictions that have adopted them, is they turn themselves from growth and prosperity into what I call the slow, gradual, relative decline. So as, have, as with New York and Florida, uh, New York was once economically incredibly predominant over Florida, far and away the richest place in the country. And over time, it's lost the lead in population. It's soon to lose the lead in per capita income. Uh, it's just in a gradual shrinking 
relative shrinking mode. I mean, if you're here, it doesn't look like it's falling apart. There are new buildings going up. Um, I think the city and state governments are going to be in big financial trouble because property values are going to go down and income is going to go down some, but relatively. So I don't see an immediate collapse. It's slow, gradual, relative decline. All right. Francis Menton, the Manhattan contrarian. Thanks for being on the Dan Prof Show. It's a pleasure and a privilege. Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. We are joined now by Brandon O'Neill, the editor of Spiked. Brandon, thanks for being on The Dan Proft Show. Hi, my pleasure. Brandon, you are coming to us from the United Kingdom, and I want to uh, talk in this segment kind of broadly about how things are going in the UK. Uh, you've been beset with the uh, COVID-19 virus, just like everybody else in the world. Uh, how are things going there? Uh, not very well at the moment, to be honest. We are, we've had a lot of cases of COVID-19. We've had a high number of deaths relative to some other European countries. Um, so we've been hit pretty hard by it but but we've also been hit i think by a lack of imagination among the political class which means that we have spent most of this year going in and out of lockdown there has been this vicious cycle of locking down opening up locking down opening up it's incredibly disorientating it means that we have had most of our civil liberties taken away from us and it also means that we are heading for, for the worst recession since the great frost of the 1700s. That's how serious the economic situation is as a result of these constant lockdowns. So at the moment, I'm afraid to say things are not looking rosy in the UK. Have you been able to see effects from the lockdowns? Uh, you know, in the United States, we have this kind of crazy quilt of policies where different states are doing different things. And that's good in the sense that you can see the effects of different policies. And I study the data and I can't, I can't see the effects, the positive effects. I can see the, the negative personal and economic impacts, but I don't see positive health benefits from shutdowns and mask mandates. What, what, what's your perception there in the UK? I'm not seeing that either. I mean, it, it, at a very basic level, of course, if you lock everyone in their houses, essentially if you put everyone under house arrest, which has happened in the UK a couple of times this year, then, of course, the virus stops spreading for a period of time because people are not mixing and, and engaging in the way that they traditionally do. But, of course, as soon, as soon as you open up again, there's another spike. The virus comes back because, as everyone with a brain cell knows, viruses don't just go away. You can't just put them in a cupboard and, and that's the end of it. They, they do what they do. Um, and there, are, there is now some discussion about the possibility that lockdowns are the things that allow the virus to mutate in a particular way because um, if you deny the ability of the virus to move through the population in a managed way, then it does start to do strange things. I'm very interested in that discussion. So I haven't seen clear health benefits uh, in terms of a long-term approach, but what I have seen as a consequence of the lockdown 
are a lot of negative health effects. So the National Health Service in the UK essentially became the National COVID Service for a period of time. It was only treating COVID cases. It was telling everyone else to stay at home. It was closing hospitals to things like cancer screening and cancer treatment. And as a consequence of that, there's been a spike in people dying at home from um, heart attacks, from strokes, and the cancer research charities in the UK estimate that about a million cancer cancers may have been missed this year and as a consequence more people are likely to die from cancer than otherwise would have been the case so the unwitting negative health impact of lockdowns is something i think britain will be dealing with for a long time to come you know you mentioned something that i've been seeing newspaper headlines about and that is speculation uh, on our side of the atlantic that there may have been a new form of covid that's been developed or mutated in the uk what, what do we know about that Well, there's been quite a few um, mutations of COVID-19. You know, that's what viruses do, of course. Viruses mutate. That's why, um, and and they tend to weaken as they mutate. That's the the history of viruses. That's why we have the common cold at the moment. The common cold is essentially a, a mutated virus over a period of time. It becomes less lethal over time. It becomes something we can live with eventually. And hopefully, that's what's happening with COVID-19 through these various mutations. There's a mutation in the UK at the moment, which is grabbing the world's attention because according to the experts, this still needs to be proven, but according to the experts, it is highly transmissible, far more transmissible even than the original version of COVID-19 was. So it spreads very easily and it seems to be taking hold, particularly in London and the Southeast, which is where I'm based, which is why Our Christmas has been cancelled and we've all been told to stay at home. But even this mutating version, we do have to get it into some kind of perspective. There are many expert voices who are saying, listen, let's not overreact to this mutating version. Let's not go around calling it the mutant virus, which is what the newspapers here are doing, because that make it sound like a zombie apocalypse when in fact... Uh, the mutations of the virus are a perfectly normal thing. We're going to go to a break now, and we will be back with more with Brendan O'Neill. It's the most wonderful time of the year. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We are talking with Brendan O'Neill, the editor of Spiked, who is coming to us from the United Kingdom. Brendan, uh, I I follow the news from the UK kind of casually, but one thing that I've seen about the the COVID situation is that you have this system of of tiers. And and I think that London and the Southeast have now gone to tier four. Can you just explain to our listeners what what, what that's all about? Yeah, tiers. So we have different tiers, different versions of of lockdown at the moment. Um, Tier one is quite relaxed. Uh, Only a tiny, tiny section of the country is in tier one at the moment. Most of the country is in tier three. Um, And then London and the southeast is in tier four. Tier four is pretty strict. So in tier four, everything is shut down. Um, Non-essential shops are closed. Gyms are closed. Cinemas, any... any, um, 
uh, zone of life in which people gather together has been shut down forcibly by law. We're also told to stay at home unless we absolutely need to go to work and households are not allowed to mix. So that's the most um, stringent measure in tier four. Households cannot mix inside. You can meet one or two people outdoors, but there's no mixing indoors. Now, of course, the reason that's a problem is because we're heading to Christmas and at Christmas, households mix indoors. That's what people do. So this has called a, caused a real crisis for huge numbers of people. Uh, the whole of London and the southeast, as you say, are in tier four. Um, very soon, other parts of the country are going to move into tier four too, probably on Boxing Day just after Christmas. I think by the time we get to the begin beginning of 2021, essentially the country will be back into a national lockdown, basically house arrest. And so we're back to square one. We're back to where we were in March and April this year when the lockdown first came into effect. This is completely unsustainable. More and more people are now asking when this is going to end. Yeah, that's really a discouraging report, uh, Brendan. You know, here again, I, I just see scattered news stories, but I've seen a number of stories about what seem to be fairly substantial demonstrations by people against these lockdown measures. Uh, is that right? Are, are people starting to take to the streets and express their, their disapproval? There have been some big demonstrations, particularly in London and Manchester in the north of England. Manchester is our second city. Uh, there have been huge demonstrations in London and Manchester and smaller demonstrations in other parts of the country. People are getting really angry. And I think the rebellion against uh, the current situation is really taking two forms. Firstly, there's the form of people simply breaking or bending the rules and finding a way around the lockdown measures. Now, most people are doing that not because they are hardcore anti-authoritarians, but simply because they need to do that in order to survive. They have to go to work or they have to visit loved ones. You know, people really desperately need that kind of connection. So the first form of rebellion is people simply ignoring the rules when they don't work in their own lives. And there's lots of reporting about that and lots of opinion polls are finding that people are doing that. And the second is the much more political confrontation, protests in the streets, people gathering without masks and demanding uh, the, the restoration of our civil liberties because under the Coronavirus Act, which is a key part of law in this country now, we have virtually none of our civil liberties. It's against the law to protest. We don't have freedom of association. You can be arrested in some situations for leaving your home without good reason. So people are protesting against that legislation and demanding an end to the cycle of lockdown. So, yes, there is a pretty healthy pushback. I'm hoping it will grow and become bigger because we really do need to put the government on the spot about what it's doing. You know, I've always thought that Americans in general are a liberty loving people. I've been stunned, Brandon, at, at, at the ease with which governors have been able to issue these stay-at-home orders, don't see your family, shut down the restaurants and the gyms, uh, et cetera, with really very, very little protest. I, I, I admire you Brits. Uh, it sounds like you've got more people really standing up for freedom than we do here in the U.S. There are there are quite a few people in the UK doing that. I, I, I wish there were more and I, I wish the pushback was larger. And, and I think that might be coming. Um, but, you know, it, it, I have 
immense admiration for the history of American liberty. And it's worth remembering that the UK has that too. You know, England is the land of, you know, the English Civil War, the fight for liberty, the fight for press freedom, from John Milton to John Stuart Mill. You know, this is a country which in many ways invented the modern idea of liberty, that the liberty to speak, the liberty to associate, the right to um, express yourself and to have your views represented. Those struggles have defined the UK for the past 400 years. And some of that has come back into play. Some of that has influenced how people are responding to lockdowns and, and responding to the government essentially putting us under house arrest. So lots of people are calling on that great history and tradition of liberty and saying, listen, we can't sacrifice our liberty just because we face a health crisis. Even in the circumstances of a health crisis, we need rational discussion, discussion reasoned policy, and uh, everything we can do to defend the utmost liberty. So that argument is growing, and I'm hoping it will grow further in 2021. And we also need to have policies that are grounded in basic realities. For example, the reality that man is a social animal. You know, it doesn't work to tell human beings that they must stay alone in their in in their basements. We're just we're not built that way. Absolutely, that I think that's actually the key point here. And um, you know, the atomizing policies that have been act- enacted over the past few months in many many Western countries, I think they have been incredibly destructive. And very often, there's a word in the UK, there's a new word which is COVIDiot, and a COVIDiot is um, anyone who dares to break the rules around COVID. If you, if you go out more than once a day or if you visit a loved one you're not supposed to be visiting or if you go to your workplace when in fact you could work from home, you'll be called a COVIDiot. Sometimes you'll be shamed in the media because the, our hysterical media is very pro-lockdown. Uh, I don't think of these people as COVIDiots at all. I think of these people as very ordinary, decent human beings who are looking for the thing that makes life worth living, which is connection with other people, connection with other people at the workplace, in the home, with other families, other friends. People are yearning for that. Even people who recognize that we may need to social distance and we may need to take certain precautions voluntarily in our own lives are yearning for uh, human connection. Brendan O'Neill, thank you so much for being on the Dan Proft Show. Thank you. Simply having a wonderful Christmas time. We're simply having a wonderful Christmas time. Listen to podcast of the show at danproftshow.com. Last thing I want to talk about tonight is a theme that we've heard over and over and over during the last four years. I mean, how many times have you heard a liberal say or a Democrat say that Donald Trump is responsible for the coarsening of political discourse in the United States? And it's Trump who's responsible for, I think what most people agree is a, is a sharp decline in civility in our public life. And in my opinion, the exact opposite is true. Uh, I would say that the decline in in civility is attributable to the people who have carried out a four-year campaign of hate. I've never seen anything like it. 
and and yet they won't give up uh, this 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 idea that it's somehow Trump's fault or the or the Republicans' fault or the conservatives' fault that our discourse has sunk so low and has become nearly nearly violent in so many instances. So what I want to what I want to point out is a a cartoon. It's really more than a cartoon. It, it occupies like a half page or so in the um, Washington Post, the Sunday opinion section of the Washington Post. And this is a it's a it's a huge, huge drawing by someone named Anne Atelnais, who I, I take it as an editorial cartoonist for the Post. And and the title of it is All the Republican Rats. And and it says all of the state attorneys general and U.S. Congress members who collaborated with President Trump in his attempt to subvert the Constitution and stay in office. And she's got, I don't know, there must be a hundred or so, maybe more, more, more than a hundred Republicans identified by name and depicted as rats. And I mean literal rats, uh, you know, with tails and, and uh, ugly, ugly faces and whiskers and so forth. And every one of these individuals, some are state attorneys general, some are members of the House of Representatives, are all depicted as rats crawling around, jumping, uh, generally looking uh, disgusting. Now, this, of course, is a favorite uh, favorite uh, totalitarian technique, uh, dehumanizing your opponents. Uh, the Nazis, of course, famously depicted Jews as rats. One of the most famous and uh, infamous uh, bits of propaganda in uh, in world history, and here we have the Washington Post doing exactly the same thing to Republican office holders, and and the theme of this is insane. It's insane. These people are rats because they collaborated with President Trump, quote, in his attempt to subvert the Constitution and stay in office. Well, what President Trump has done is to bring lawsuits so that the courts can adjudicate the results of elections in various states. He's advanced legal theories. So far, they haven't been very successful. But the idea that it subverts the Constitution for President Trump to object to voter fraud and to uh, bring lawsuits seeking adjudication of what are the legitimate results of elections in various states is ridiculous. And yet this is what gets Republicans depicted as rats in the Washington Post. Uh, I I think the incivility that we've seen for the last four years is going to be with us for a long time to come. So with that, the program is a wrap, and I hope to be back here on the Dan Proft Show again uh, soon. This is the Dan Proft Show.